it's David, and you're listening to the Toe Bass Classical Guitar Podcast. We've got David Tannebaum as our guest for today's episode. Really prolific guitarist, huge proponent for the new music scene for the classical guitar. He's had many pieces written for him, and he's worked closely alongside um, some really phenomenal composers. You're going to hear some very interesting stories with Henza Takemetsu and Steve Reich. Um, I had such a great time meeting David a couple months ago in San Francisco uh, to record this conversation. And um, he, he was very generous with his time and very kind to agree to this interview. Believe it or not, he actually flew in after a month-long tour in Europe the night before we met and somehow made it through our conversation with all the jet lag. But you can really tell how passionate of a musician he is when he talks about the guitar. Before we get things started today, I've got an announcement from Chris Garwood, one of the creators and masterminds of Tonebase in regards to the highly anticipated V2 of the website. Yeah, we're super excited to have just launched a new version of Tonebase. We've been working on this new update for about like four months or so, and it's way better than the previous site. Some of the new features you can find are a user dashboard where you can keep track of all your lessons and blogs and of course podcasts. We also have made it possible to download free musical scores and lesson outlines, which at a glance give you a sense of what the lesson is going to be about. And finally, we are adding a bunch of great new artists, two of them being Leo Brower and Manuel Barueco, whose interview is now available on the site. And for all you faithful podcast listeners, we want to give you a little discount on your subscription. If you use the coupon code TONEBASE-PODCAST, all caps, uh, you'll get $15 off your subscription. Um, so we'll see you on TONEBASE, and back to you, David. Thanks, Chris. Highly encourage everyone to head over to tonebase.co uh, to check out these exciting new changes. And just as a friendly reminder, if you're looking for the podcast webpage, we are at tonebase.co slash podcast. So speaking of Steve Reich, I really wanted to play the infamous Electric Counterpoint. Um, I've become obsessed with this piece over the past week after editing this episode. It's uh, an amazing um, minimalist piece. Originally written uh, for Pat Metheny, the electric guitarist. Um, I'll let David explain the story behind everything, but in 94, he released his recording and uh, gave many performances of this piece. It features a solo guitar with seven other uh, guitar parts uh, layered into it, creating some very interesting textures and counterpoints along with uh, two bass guitars. So that's uh, 10 parts all together, and David recorded and uh, overdubbed each one of these. So it's in three movements. It's a 15-minute long piece, and each movement segues into the next. So let's take a listen to the first movement, titled Fast.
Kyle, you just have a, an amazing resume. You know, premiering and having works commissioned and written for you by great um, new music composers like Hensa. Are those uh, are things like that kind of taking up your projects now, or are you going in a different direction? I basically am doing a lot of new music all the time. Yeah, um, and you know, I I do play Baroque music and other things as well. But I would say. The big story of my work is the new music. That's what mm-hmm. I think has differentiated me because I've worked with some of the great composers. Um, and I wasn't doing anything super new in Europe this time, but one of the experiences was was pretty special because uh, it was a guitar festival in a very, very small town uh, in the middle of France near Chartereau called Chassignol. Okay. And it's run by a pianist named Cyril Houvet who is really into early pianos. And he collected about seven different pianos, like one from Beethoven's era and one from Chopin mm. and like that. And he couldn't find a place to keep them in Paris. So he found this place in the countryside, La, La Grange au Piano, the barn of pianos. And he's produced all these concerts, mostly piano concerts, but yeah. his son has taken up the classical guitar. So he contacted me and asked me to play rural winter music in this incredibly small countryside place. And I kept saying, are you sure that's a good idea? But it turns out there's an audience that really trusts him. And so I did it. I did the first sonata in the second half. No one left at intermission. Everybody stayed. It was dead quiet the whole time. And it was this trust that this guy had developed. That's amazing. And my guess is, of course, some people were probably from out of town, but the majority of the audience were probably locals from that tiny town. I would say so. I mean, there were guitar players who were there, you know, to get lessons and things like that. But exactly as you said. And the fact that they would sit through and I love that repertoire but it's definitely not everyone's cup of tea it's a it's a bit more out there and if you aren't familiar with that style of music which was probably very much the case of these listeners are used to hearing these uh, kind of period instruments and I'm sure most of the programs it's Mozart Beethoven all that stuff that's amazing that they and none of them walked out and I'm guessing it was very well received altogether it really was. And I think part of it was the trust that Cyril yeah. had built up. We also, he did a little, he played a YouTube of Henza and Bream working together mm, on the piece. That's a great that, video. Yeah, it's great. So he played that before I played it. And then I introduced it by talking about each of the characters. And, uh, did he include the part where Bream and uh, Henza are playing badminton? That's where oh, it starts. I, I it's just, so I, good. It, <laughs> it just shows, you know, the, these uh, these gods of the guitar world they're just people of you course. know uh it, it, it's such a refreshing thing to see um yeah that that, that really surprises me in a, in a beautiful way i mean i remember one time i was at a gfa and i i'm not going to give the name of the player and you played it fantastically and i really enjoyed it he played the barrio sequenza which you know that that's more kind of crazy contemporary and i love that stuff i don't mean to use crazy in a negative sense but for people who aren't used to kind of atonal music it's definitely more out there and this was at gfa you know pretty much everyone who's attending a concert at gfa is either a serious guitarist or a serious listener the classical guitar and tons of people walked out and there were still more pieces on the program and to hear that a small or not necessarily small, but, you know, an audience who's used to more traditional music in a small town in France would sit through and enjoy a concert of Hens's works immensely. That's just awesome. Yeah, I think it's awesome. And I think a few things on what you said. I mean, first of all, the Berio is a more abstract piece, whereas some people can relate to the Henza because it's, a, it's about Shakespeare characters yeah. that they know. But I find the programming at festivals like GFA really conservative. And it doesn't surprise me that much that people walked out. I think I have the sense that people go to a lot of these festivals to hear sort of familiar players playing familiar works. And I wish it was a place where people could try more things like that. I'd be really curious to kind of hear your take on kind of the general repertoire choices in the realm of our classical guitar world, because I'm very guilty of it. And I've talked about it previously in uh, other episodes. I, I definitely play uh, some of these pieces that are super popular. And a lot of them, not, not really kind of new music. And um, I really wish I kind of helped with the new music um, uh, world like you do. What, what's your take on everything? Um, is it, a bit of a pet peeve when you hear the same piece over and over again or do you think it shows that it's a wonderful composition how do you think we need to approach our music now 
Well, I think there is a conservative bent in in guitarists and the guitar world. And in some ways, I think we are expressing some of the thing, same things that Segovia was complaining about 100 years ago, which is that, you know, it, it's the same people playing the same repertoire by guitarists, composers, and we've got to go bigger. That's basically what Segovia was talking about 100 years ago. And um, there is this sort of gravitational pull. You know, I find it's a lot of middle-aged white guys, you know, who are kind of going to feel comfortable and to hear the same kind of repertoire. And um, that is my experience. And I think what I, the only thing I can say is that I am continually amazed by what this small instrument can do and how it even can vibrate in different ways. Like I'm working on the Elliott Carter piece changes now yeah which i have studied but never performed before and, and i'm part of the san francisco contemporary music uh players which asked me to play it and so i agreed to do it and um i'm just amazed by many things about the piece but the sound first of all and you know carter talked about writing pieces for players and listening to their sound, and in a way, I feel like he gave Starobin sound back to him because Starobin makes a, a kind of very clear sound, and this piece just doesn't resonate in the same way that other guitar pieces do. It's very kind of a little dry and clear. Mm. I think there's more to be explored, and that's why you know creating new repertoire like this. I, I just am very excited by yeah. it. Yeah, and I find classical guitar, and obviously. I'm biased. I'm a classical guitarist and I love my instrument, but I find it a very, very unique instrument because of this huge capability of different colors, different sounds. And yes, lots of other instruments, you know, you can create very different interpretations and, and, and textures and everything based on the way you play. But there's something about the guitar. It, it's so hard to describe in words. I think that's why we love it so much. It's, uh, there's just something so unique with the intimacy of us actually physically touching the strings, not using a bow, not using a hammer like a piano. Um, and it just opens up totally so many possibilities. And to have that on a harmonic instrument at the same time, it, you know, I've had student composers come up to me and ask, hey, how do I write for the guitar? I want to write a piece for guitar. And it's like, I don't know where to start. There's so much you can get into. Yeah, I mean, what I would tell them is I would I would give them a repertoire list to listen to, give them a listening list yeah. and some scores to look at and sort of show some of the major things that have been done and um, and then tell them tell them to start and to not be afraid of the idiosyncrasies because they should work with someone like you who can help mold something to the guitar. But it is these very people who are not guitar players, who are not going to be influenced by what's convenient on the fingerboard that interests me. Yeah. And, and it's, I, I'm interested in even the mistakes they make. Like they're looking, they're outliers. They're looking at the guitar from the outside and they're going to maybe hear something or come up with things that don't quite work, but it's a different view of the instrument. Because probably if you give them all the guidelines and you can do this chord, but you can't do that because of this tuning and blah, 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 they're probably going to feel constricted and musically it's not going to be very engaging. Yeah, and I try not to do that. Yeah. I, I tell them just write and, you know, we'll, we'll fix it together. later. We'll make it work. Yeah. Yeah. Creativity involves waste. Just get some ideas down. I'll make it work. In a ways, I, I go to some of these concerts and... I'm just blown away by new techniques that are kind of being developed in ways today. You know, not not that tomorrow there's going to be a new technique or anything like that, but there's, and maybe I shouldn't say this because I wasn't involved with the classical guitar scene 15 years ago, but it, it seems from my perspective, there's new techniques, new tunings that were never thought of 15 years ago. And it's amazing how things have propelled. Yeah, I mean, there's a quartet by George Friedrich Haas, who's an Austrian composer, guitar quartet that I'm going to be doing. It's about 10 years old, but each of the guitars is tuned microtonally slightly differently. And it creates a sound that I've never heard the likes of in, on the guitar, both in the tuning and in the rhythm. It never lets you feel comfort. I mean, you never, you never can quite get a handle of where you are. Yeah. It just messes with your equilibrium. And that's what I like about the piece. It's kind of the opposite of what you might hear in guitar festivals that we started out talking yeah. about. This is something actually to just take you to a different place altogether. You worked very closely 
with a lot of amazing composers. And the names that come to mind to me immediately are Hadza and Takamitsu. What an experience that must have been. Well, these have been these composers have been my greatest teachers. Um, I would throw in Steve Reich and Terry Riley and John Adams, yeah. and you know, it sounds like name droppings, but I've worked with these people, and you know, they have ears that um, just are amazing, and they always I always come away from sessions with composers like that feeling enriched and like I've learned a lot. And each collaboration is a, is totally different. You know, I can say that for sure. I, I'd be curious to hear, were, were some of these composers very open um, with collaboration in regards to kind of fitting their, their composition into the guitar? Or did some of them have a very clear mindset of what they wanted and they kind of wanted to keep it that way? Well, it, it, it's I would say both to that answer. Uh -huh. I mean, different compo every composer is different. But I can start by talking about Henza, um, who uh, wrote me a concerto after hearing me play royal winter music. It's called On Ina Aelsharfa to mm -hmm. an Aeolian Harp. And, you know, he's a composer who really loved the guitar. He's written about it very beautifully, um, talking about how it's sort of like a gigantic t contemporary orchestra, but one has to pause to notice this and sort of get really silent and to hear its colors. Yeah. Um, and so what was fascinating about working with him was that he really wanted a very active collaboration, which is a very exciting thing for me because I don't compose, but I love to get my sort of hands dirty helping a piece come to life. Yeah. So Henza, at the time that he wrote this concerto for me, which was 85 and 86, had already written El Cimarron, which is a 90-minute a full evening piece, chamber piece with guitar, had already written the hour-long Royal Winter Music, had mm -hmm. written Camera Musique, which is 45 minutes, and yet in the fourth movement of the concerto wrote chords that had 10 notes in them. And and things that he was aware didn't work. Yeah. And in terms of those chords, he said to me, look, I kind of like all these notes. You make the chords. Wow. So for the most part, the chords in the last movement of that concerto are are my construction, my my voicing. And he was happy with what you chose immediately, or was he kind of like, oh, actually, when I think about it, or was he just did he just give you the full the full reign over those chords? I would say both to that answer yeah. also. He gave me full reign to, to create chords, and but he certainly wanted a final say and to hear them, yeah, and he changed yeah. some. Wow, that is. That's amazing. Yeah, that was fascinating. That must have been... Uh, I would be going crazy. I'd be up till five in the morning each night trying to figure out, oh, which one, which one? These are all such cool notes because I'm yeah. assuming they were some very uh, interesting harmonies, to say the least. Yeah, I mean, for instance, the very last chord in the piece that the guitar plays is basically a G minor chord with a, with a ninth, with a high A. And I kept playing with different voicings of that chord and I knew that he wanted the instrument to really resonate. And, and uh, so I, I was looking for the most sort of deeply resonant voicing of that chord. Yeah. And um, as we're saying, it's great to just have a composer just right for the instrument that we figure out what works best for the guitar. Uh, but there is a certain kind of understanding that you can only truly know with the guitar if you're a, a player yourself. And I think one of the big things is really getting the most resonance out of the instrument. And I think that's one of the things that's so unique about our instrument because it can be a very dry sound. And if you add a capo, it's a very tight kind of cut sound. But if you utilize... Uh, certain harmonies overtones and everything it could it could change what's a quiet instrument into just this huge cloud of sound in ways yes and i mean sometimes even the concept of a composer is challenging for instance henza in that concerto he i should preface this by saying he didn't like microphones he didn't want to amplify mm -hmm. and so he chose a very sort of thick and low ensemble that had no violins and no flutes, had two violas, viola d'amour, uh, oboe d'amour, uh, viola da gamba, so early music instruments. And he wanted the guitar to be essentially the highest instrument in that, huh. or in that ensemble. That's really smart. Smart but challenging because he liked counterpoint as well. And I spent most of my time in the editing of that concerto cutting things out 
because he, you know, whereas I created those chords, he wanted sometimes, you know, two distinct voices going on at a very high rate of speed all above the 12th fret. And, and we got more sound and more effect and more projection by cutting one of the two voices out. Yeah. So if you were to see the manuscript of that, I mean, it's, it's really basically unplayable in a lot of ways. Yeah. So he had to be, you know, he wanted an act of collaboration and he really had to be edited as, as a composer. Yeah. And if Henza had a fault at all, it was that he tended to overwrite sometimes. He got so enthusiastic and emotional about his material that he would sometimes over-orchestrate as well. And I went into the, project knowing that and thinking you know we have to make the guitar speak but but less maybe more that's fantastic that he he was so open because probably he really up was things immensely and it you know it reminds me you know the famous Villalobos guitar concerto it's a beautiful piece but the orchestration is just so thick and even with amplification I could barely hear the guitar, regardless of how, if you turn it up to 11, if you go spinal tap on it, <laughs> yeah. but uh, it, it, it's just too thick orchestration. Probably so. I think of the major concertos we have, that's the most problematic one. And, the, you know, the story uh, that I've heard in interviews is that uh, Villa Lobos and his wife spent the whole night before the premiere marking down the dynamics in the score to like, wow. for the orchestra, triple piano and, and pianissimo. Um, but... I will say about that concerto that Segovia's instincts were once again really right in the sense that it was first written without a cadenza. And he worked really hard to get Villalobos to write a cadenza, which he did six years later. And that is my favorite cadenza in our repertoire. I've heard on CDs and in concerts, people playing that cadenza solo just by itself. Yeah. And it, it, it works beautifully. Absolutely. Programmatically. Right. I, I had no idea that... Um, it wasn't added till six years after. Yeah, That's... he really, Segovia felt it, it had to have that, and he apparently uh, went to hear Nicholas Zabaleta, who was a famous harp player of the time, premiere a harp concerto that Villalobos had written with a cadenza. Yeah. And he showed up from Europe to hear this in New York and said, look, you know, he got a cadenza. I want one. Look how well this worked. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, only Segovia would like have the guts to just say that straight to yeah, but <laughs> Villalobos. It took, I mean, they were kind of like strong individuals. They were, they were like each other, but it took that kind of uh, uh, willpower to get done what Segovia did. Yeah. And in this case, the piece benefited immensely. He, he was definitely the right character to propel the guitar forwards um and everyone can have their opinions on him with his playing and you know maybe different ways he altered some pieces but you needed that strong character to make things happen i think so i think he changed an entire landscape and um you know people got burned in the process but but we're not sitting here do this doing this podcast without him doing yeah. what he did i am heartbroken though we don't have any uh stravinsky <laughs> That's a tough one. And and for me, the bigger loss is Bartok. Bartok was going to write for us? I don't have any evidence of that, but I just think his style on the guitar would have been just ideal. Yeah. Oh, that would have been amazing. Yeah. Because I've had some friends who've arranged some of his work. So, I mean, it's not quite reflective of his compositional style, but of course the Romanian folk dances are ever so popular to play. Right. on our instrument. Right. And even the little pieces for children, which are not really concert pieces, have been arranged multiple times and they sound just wonderful on the guitar. I love those pieces. Yeah, and it it just great. shocks me that they're so beautiful. It's so simple to play on the piano. It's like, I, I wish I had something to play like that when I was in book one of Suzuki instead of Twinkle Little Star. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I remember learning one of those. I had to pass a piano comp uh, thing for a little diploma. Yeah. And uh, I, I just found it's like, wait, I could play Bartok on the piano? And it doesn't feel like he's writing simplistically. It's still beautiful yeah. writing. It's, it's folk music sort of integrated so beautifully into what he's doing. Well, he was so inspired by folk music Absolutely. altogether. And as Stravinsky was as well, yeah. actually. No, very much so. I I think people forget that a lot about Stravinsky because most people just think to write a spring. And it's one of my favorite pieces. It's not one of his kind of folk-inspired pieces. No, it's a ballet. And for me, it's the greatest piece of the 20th century. I think that piece feels fresh, what, 106 years later. My favorite my favorite uh, quote in regards to that piece is St. Sans. In regards to the opening bassoon line, if that's a bassoon, then I'm a... I must be a baboon or something like that. <laughs> <I see. laughs> but it, it, it's interesting that 
not to get on a tangent on a little soon line, but it really makes me think, did Stravinsky, it's, a, it's an awful register for the instrument. It sounds awful, but was that the sound Stravinsky wanted? Did he want a very kind of pressurized, tight, really kind of nasally sound? And I think he did. He I was mean, a genius. I, I think you answered your own question. Someone who wrote a piece like that that's so revolutionary that, you know, perhaps made rhythm the primary element for the first time in music. You think he didn't know what he was doing with the opening line? When we started this segment, you were asking about Takamitsu, and um, he was just an, an amazingly interesting person to know and to work with. And as Bream said, I think he had some of the best ears that I ever experienced hmm. working with anybody. It just felt like he could hear anything. Do you know what his approach was with the 12... Uh um, what does he title it? 12 songs for guitar arrangements? Because they're just not, at least for me, not at all what I would expect to come out from a composer like Takamitsu. You know, they're kind of these jazzy and I love them, but it's just polar opposites. Do you know what happened there? I do exactly because he gave them to me and told me the story. Um, but, you know, you should know that, that Takamitsu was very influenced by American pop music. After the uh, Second World War, he was he was cleaning, cleaning American army barracks and hanging out with a lot of American soldiers who were playing him some of these great pop tunes. And it mm. was soon after that that he got tuberculosis and spent six months in the hospital and decided at that time to become a composer. And that influence of popular music never went fully away. Wow. So he loved these, these pieces. I mean, he truly loved them. What he told me about them was that he wanted to write a set of 12 etudes. And he, you know, he was involved in the guitar and its repertoire and frustrated by its repertoire for a long time. He, at one point, he wrote a letter to Michael Lormer and he said, the third movement of Folios is making some caustic remarks about the guitar repertoire because guitar composers are not fully embracing tonality and, and not fully courageous enough to leave it. So they're sort of in this, this hazy middle ground. Um, so he was involved to that degree, and these were etudes, but he couldn't publish them as etudes because of the copyright problems. And he told me that very specifically. I remember it as clear as if as if, as if it was yesterday. Yeah. So that's why they're you know yesterday and Hey Jude and all that. But his full intention was to publish them as twelve etudes. Oh, that's fascinating. They are gems. I love them. They are gems, and they are real. Etudes, and it, there's a lot of left hand challenge in them. They, and then carrying a tune on the guitar. I mean, that is, if they are etudes on that, that's a fantastic set of studies. I, it was before I was familiar and even familiar with who Takamitsu was, but I printed up yesterday thinking, oh, you know, I'll be able to just kind of read through this. And I, I, I was up for hours trying to figure it out. And I, I did pull it off till I returned to it years later. They're, they're, they're tricky, but when they're done well, they. The yesterday arrangement and the over the rainbow, oh, it just beautiful. They're gorgeous. I love them. So do I. Yeah. Um, so I can tell you that w one thing that was interesting about working with him was that his scores are so fully detailed. I mean, he they are more notated in terms of articulation and color and all dynamics, things like that, than almost any music we have for the guitar of yeah. any era. And yet he wanted, when working with him, he wanted gesture above all. He really talked about line and gesture, even to the point where you would ignore some of the things he had written down. So wow. he was very careful to notate, but that's what he was focused on. Yeah. yeah. Reminds me a lot of Dean's. We, we talked about this before, just in regards to how detailed he was on the score. Dianz was very much that way. Yeah. Dianz, though, felt to me like he played and uh, and wanted really what he wrote. Yeah. And Takamitsu, you know, for the most part did, but working with him... A bit more open, maybe. Yeah, he was open, and, and he was looking for a bigger sense of gesture yeah, than yeah. sometimes was expressed in the, in the notation. Takamitsu owned two Ramirez's, oh, and, really? and he... Absolutely wrote his music on the guitar, oh, I had but no he would idea. never play for anybody. But he told me, for instance, like All in Twilight, he had a he mostly lived in Tokyo, but he had a retreat place in the mountains, which had like well water. I mean, very rustic. And he said he brought a guitar with him and just lived by himself for two weeks and wrote that piece, working everything out on the guitar. Wow. But um, I think to this day, my favorite guitar festival that I've 
was ever invited to was one that he directed. Mm -hmm. It was 91 in uh, sort of the countryside of of Japan. From the West, he invited uh, Barueko and myself, but a lot of his really good friends from Japan, like Kiyosu Shimura and um, Norio Sato, were there. and it was one of the most varied guitar festivals I've ever been to. There was blues and jazz and classical and all kinds of things like that. Um, but he, that festival showed me how involved he really was with the, with the instrument. He used it really throughout his uh, writing career. Really, I mean, there are early pieces in the 60s, chamber pieces, and he's, we have three concertos, and he basically, there's no era of his work where he wasn't writing for the guitar. Yeah, and uh, a lot of times, uh, when my friends, a lot of my friends are orchestral musicians, I, I'm just so jealous of them because they have these amazing new music composers and we just don't have anything from them. But Takamitsu is one of those names and, and they're like, oh yeah, we're playing this piece. Have you ever heard of this guy called Takamitsu? It's really neat. It's like, he wrote a lot for our instrument and he's one of our gems. They're like, no, he didn't write for guitar. It is. And yes, he did. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, but I would say now we have the ear of most great modern living composers. Most of them have dipped their fingers in a, at least a little bit. Yeah. And that's different from the earlier eras. And I think that's one of the things that's so exciting right now. There's a whole army of us out there trying to approach these people and show them what a unique and interesting instrument this is. And I find from my small experiences, people who haven't written for the guitar, it's not necessarily they don't want to. It's just they're kind of scared. They're interested in it. And I think... That's probably, hopefully that fear goes away when they see more and more of their colleagues writing for it and realizing it's not that complex. They can write for the piano. They can write for the guitar. Yeah, it's idiosyncratic. It has its own language, its own world, as we know, starting with the tuning. Um, You know, one of the most interesting relationships I had with a composer was a dear friend named Jorge Liederman, who died quite prematurely at the age of 50. But he approached me, he was a UC Berkeley uh, professor, and he approached me and he said, look, I am a classical guitarist. I started out playing the instrument and I became a composer and I have written for every instrument but the guitar. I'm completely stuck on my own instrument and I'm calling you in desperation asking for you to help me get over the hump with this instrument. Mm-hmm. And that was so instrument it's so interesting because he almost knew too much. Yeah. You know, he just knew everything and but he couldn't get started. And uh-huh. and I tried to get him a little bit to back away from his knowledge of the instrument and not write on the guitar. Well, there's a Japanese composer I'm thinking of right now, uh, Shingo Fuji, I uh-huh. think. And I've heard his approach to writing for the guitar, and he's an accomplished player. He says he doesn't think about the guitar at all. He walks away from the instrument and composes. Yeah. And I mean, that's a very different style of music that he's writing. But um, it, it's interesting to hear that from, from a performer. From like a him. player. Well, yeah. that whatever your way in is, you know, that's great. And we, of course, need our, you know, great cl- uh, guitarist composers. But I've always been a little bit more drawn to the ones who don't play the instrument. I even like the mistakes they make sometimes. Yeah. Well, it's just, uh, it, it seems a bit more uh, genuine, the music, instead of, oh, this fits on the fretboard. And it, it they just go for it. They don't worry about, oh, is this going to be tricky pulling off that scale? It's just raw, intense, and passionate. Yeah, I I hesitate to myself use the word genuine because I never want to say someone's not being genuine. Yeah, yeah, maybe that was the wrong word. But the way I would express it is to say it's more outside the box, almost literally. I mean, in other words, they're not influenced by the facility of the thing and it's more of an outlier view of it and that is fascinating to me someone with really fine ears approaching it from a distance and saying look here's here's what i'm thinking about or hearing in this instrument can you adapt it i mean i think there's you know a lot of internal evidence that someone like bach or bach himself worked with lute players to adapt his works i mean bach didn't make mistakes writing for instruments generally but he made a lot of mistakes in the lute writing there are chords that don't work there are notes outside the range 1006a is way better in f major than e major all the contemporary lute players play it in f so clearly they were sort of templates that a, a lute player was supposed to use to adapt and i think that can be a model for you know great composers now working with players what was it like working with steve Reich? well steve um really 
took minimalism and and put a lot of control on it and made it very exacting. Um, you know, he was part of the premiere of NC uh, that Terry Riley wrote, and he. But then he kind of cleaned the whole thing up and made it very precise. So working with him, uh, there wasn't a lot that I kind of had to do in terms of making his work uh, adapt onto the guitar. Of course, Electric Counterpoint is 15 different players, so each one is mostly single line. Yeah. But, you know, the most I, I added in working on that piece, I was involved with him while he was writing it, was the crescendo and the solo guitar at the end. I said, put a crescendo in there, and he, and he did. But, um, you know, <laughs> we toured the piece. Matheny played the premiere and then recorded it um, and did the whole thing down pick which is remarkable. But he said his hand was just killing him after and he didn't want to play it. So I did all the European premieres with Steve. And, you know, he would, basically he liked my work, but if he ever said anything, it was things like, you know, you started the crescendo on the third quarter note, but I told you to start it on the second quarter note. Oh. I mean, it's that level of precision. Wow. But um, of the pieces that I've helped bring into the world, the one that gets played the most is this piece called Nagoya Guitars. Mm -hmm. And... That came about because a friend of mine, Aaron Kernis, heard Nagoya Marimbas, which is the original, a little five-minute piece for two marimbas. Heard the New York premiere and Alice Tully Hall called me and said, I think this can work with guitar. And I got Mark Teicholtz, who you also, I know, are doing a podcast with, my colleague. I said, hey, let's, let's sight-read this for Steve into a cassette tape and uh, see what he thinks. Because you know, when I got the music from Steve, it, looked, it was sight-readable on guitar. So we did, and... I expected he was going to love it, and he wrote back and said, you know, it doesn't work. Pianos have tried this piece, other instruments, it just doesn't work. And I was really kind of stunned because it was sight-readable. Yeah. But then I decided to sort of just try harder, and I changed the key and put some harmonics in and did some work on it to really adapt it to the guitar, and that piqued his interest. And then there was a back and forth that we did, and uh, you know, ultimately it's a collaboration between the two of us. Yeah. But um, it was a matter of register and color and things like that, rather than really changing any notes that made that work. Huh. That's, yeah. Uh... So he wasn't a person who sugarcoated things. No, he never sugarcoated. <laughs> Man, that must have been rough getting a, an email or whatever from him saying, yeah, I don't like it. <laughs> yeah, before the days of email, but it was rough. Wait, but, was it a letter in the mail then? Or? And we talked a lot on the phone. Or on the but phone. But we did some oh, letters. Man, I, that, but the, the fact that you kind of kept going for it and then you kind of, maybe it's the wrong word, but convinced him that this can be good with guitar. Yeah, I, I, I think that was... Um, that was a little scary because the second no would have been the last no. But I tried it again and, and it worked. You had to go for it. But I'm when so I, glad you did. I, me too. When I did the recording, my recording of uh, Electric Counterpoint, which we called Acoustic Counterpoint, it was the first acoustic version of it, um, I sent him uh, you know, the first edit. And I called him and he called back and he said, you have a pencil and paper. And he then read off what turned out to be three pages of handwritten notes wow. all about the mix. Not a, not a note about the, the, the notes, but everything about balancing and register differences. And, you know, this delicate balance in electric counterpoint where the solo voice needs to be a narrator and always audible, but not so dominate that you can't hear the, the counterpoint and all the textures going on underneath. And that's a fine line. And that's what I think players should go for when they, yeah. when they approach that piece. So what do you think of that piece being played on electric guitar as opposed to uh, classical or acoustic? Or do you think as long as it's pulled off with all these uh, variables and factors you're talking about, it's okay? Well, it was written for electric guitar. It was written yeah. for Matheny. So that's its original and natural home. Mm -hmm. um, what was interesting is when I did the first tours, I didn't have my own background tape yet. And so I was playing classical against Matheny's electric. And that, I think, was quite successful because you could always hear the different color of the solo line. And in fact, when I then started to tour it with my own background tape, some people complained that they couldn't quite tell if I was actually faking it or not. They couldn't hear. They couldn't distinguish the different. Hmm. Uh, there was no different guitar sound to distinguish. Yeah. So the good thing about having all one color is you hear, you know, the the slight differences. But you have to make sure that the narrator is is loud enough that you that's, can that it's telling the story first. That's really neat. Yeah. Yeah. I can't. I can't believe doing all that down pick because it, it, it flies. It's unbelievable to me. I mean, they they clearly wanted 
an absolute evenness. Yeah. But man, how do you survive that? That's and I mean, I, my friends talk about, oh, Metallica is crazy. They all downpick. That's nothing compared to Electric Counterpoint no. downpick. And, that and, is... and with Electric Counterpoint, there's no there's no break. No, it just keeps going. You're going for 15 minutes, and it doesn't stop between movements either. And it's that that style of just in regards to rhythm just going and going i find it extraordinarily difficult uh with any any genre of music i mean this is the total opposite but for me you know when i was younger i used to love playing the e major prelude the bach and uh chacon and my friends were like oh is it chacon really tough I found the E major prelude so much harder than the Chaconne because it's just 60 notes. It just keeps going for a solid five minutes. And how long of a piece is electric counterpoint? It's a solid 15? 15 or? minutes. Yeah. And, and minimalism is, in general, one of the only styles in the history of music that doesn't incorporate silence. You know, it just goes and yeah. goes. No, and there's not a lot of break. And, and sometimes orchestral players really complain about playing that style when you have long pieces. Man. Yeah. I know uh, Pat Metheny is very very um into rehearsing a piece to the point where everything is down um because i know uh he he wrote this uh, guitar quartet piece for la guitar quartet and he came and worked with them uh, a week before the premiere and what he said to them is yeah if i if i was playing this piece with my group i'd be uh rehearsing this 10 hours a week for a month before the premiere and the premiere was like a week later and the, wow. the guys were like oh my god what's gonna happen and it, and it was a great premiere from what i hear but i i can't i i'm surprised he didn't destroy his hand because i'm sure he was we gotta keep rehearsing this we gotta nail it we gotta get it just perfect wow well i all I know, you know, you'd have to ask him, but I heard that his hand was hurting for a while after that. I mean, yeah. I can imagine that would be true. No, I don't uh, know that, but I've heard that. Wow. That's just extraordinary. I mean, and, you know, in one sense, you admire the musical ambition that they, they wanted so much to have an even sound that they went through that difficulty. Yeah. No, it's, uh, I guess he made a sacrifice there, but uh, I'm glad uh, his hand's all right now. You know, we would have lost a... A lot of great music. A yeah, great one. And, uh, and he did end up playing Electric Counterpoint many years later again, which was nice. Did he add some up picks or still I actually down? don't know. That's a good question. Or maybe, maybe he was starting to use a loop pedal or something. To, <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Well, uh, the thing <laughs> is, but the thing is, for the recording, you're recording all 15 parts. Yeah. If you're doing it just once through, I mean, it's still difficult, but it's just once. Yeah. You know, the the, the solo line. Getting the perfect take overdubbing for 15 parts yeah when i did that it was kind of crazy because it was new albion records and they rented a very expensive mu uh, uh, machine and they told me we can't edit so you have to do each part 15 minutes if you make a mistake in the 11th minute we got to start again oh my god and that was the worst or most difficult recording day of my life i i still remember the fatigue at the end of that one because I, I had be one day. So nervous. Yeah, one day. I had one day. So tell me, you got a, a new CD coming up, or it might be a, a set of CDs. It's a it's a kind of big, messy project that I'm in the middle of, and I don't have a conclusion at this point or know when it will be done. But I basically feel very much uh, obliged to some of the great composers who have written me pieces over the years that I haven't gotten around to recording. So that's what I'm about right now is recording these pieces. I have a new one. I had a big birthday recently and Aaron J. Kernis, my dear friend, flew out from New York and presented me a piece as a present, which is oh, wow. the best present you could give That's me. That's amazing. There's not a better one. Um, and Sergio Assad did one as well. And I have two older pieces by Dushan Bogdanovich and, and various things. There's a concerto of Aaron's and, you know, various things. Um, so I'm just trying to pull these all together. And as I do and as I tell friends about it, some people have said, you know, I'd like to write you something and be part of that. So when I say it's messy, it's just it keeps growing tentacles. There's so much. Yeah. But that's a good problem to have. I think it, so. Do you, do you have an idea what you're going to call the the CD is it going to be for David or something? I like was that? thinking about the word dedication, possibly. Yeah, in its multiple meetings. Well, of course, da Russell has one called for David, so things might get confusing. If there's two for David. <laughs> for David also. Yeah, for David also, or <laughs> for David Tambien. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Sorry, uh, too much time with Bill. 
Roberto Sierra wrote me this beautiful pequeño concierto. Pequeño in two ways, in that it's only five instruments, violin, cello, oboe, flute, clarinet, and guitar. And it's also about 10 or 11 minutes. Hmm. And he wrote it in 98, literally 20 years ago. And just for various reasons, a recording never came about. So when uh, the Sacramento Chamber music players asked me to be part of a Latin program, I said to them, well, what if we play this and record it after? And so that's in the can. And I'm just very happy to be able to write to Roberto and say, hey, I finally did this thing. Finally got around to it. You wrote me this piece. I've recorded it. I love his compositions. Oh, he's fantastic. And uh, is it with amplified guitar or did he want acoustic guitar? I think he's realistic. So in the the performance, we did amplify. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, even in string quartet, or, or guitar quintet pieces uh, featuring guitar with string quartet. Even that, it's really tough to cut through without it. I think that's. I think it's true, and and the the truth is that you know the technology is so much better that we can amplify well. But I will say that you know I spent last week judging the uh, the famous Tarraga competition in Beni Kassim, as mm-hmm. I mentioned, and they have a lot of tradition there. It's fifty. It's his fifty second year. And so the traditions are, you know, everything starts at 10 p.m. because it's summertime in Spain and various things like that. And one of the traditions is that they play with the Valencia Symphony in the finals without microphone. Wow. And so we heard the Concierto de Sur by Ponce and the Tedesco and the Rodrigo Aranjuez without amplification. And it was fascinating because to me it worked, but it worked because of the sensitivity of the conductor who really had the orchestra playing down. It requires a different approach. It does that. And and what worries me about doing something like that is whether the orchestra can hear the guitar. Can the players in the back, say in the wind section, really hear an um, unamplified guitar going forward? Yeah, it, it's it's even tough when it's amplified, figuring out the monitor situation and everything. It's, uh, it's a big equation. Yeah, and for my taste what i do when i'm playing concertos is to have a monitor behind the orchestra on each side so they can really hear the guitar because that's it, it's the ensemble aspect that i worry about with that yeah no, no and not that i've performed concertos many times but the the few times it, it was kind of, i was kind of surprised how big of a deal i didn't even think that through i, I was so naive and unexperienced with it and they had a little monitor set up for the conductor and, and we didn't think, oh, we need monitors for the orchestra. And the orchestra's like, I can't hear you, David, at all. You know, even though we got big PAs going through a big hall and everything. Um, it definitely helps. But then you run into the issues of, well, maybe then they might perceive the guitar louder than it is if they're right next to the monitor. Or or if there's any kind of delay, it would be a disaster. Oh. But but if you can do it well, if you really have a good you know sound engineer there, um, <clears throat> I find that it really helps the ensemble. Someone who who knows how the instrument works. Yeah, absolutely. And I you know I think for me it's most successful in terms of the main amplification if I can have uh, a monitor or projector near me in terms of location and then color with the house. Yeah, and then have some monitors behind them. Thank you, David, for being on the show. Please join me in two weeks for a conversation with Jorge Caballero. Finish things up today uh, with the other two movements, slow and fast, of Steve Reich's electric counterpoint. I'm David Steinhardt, and we'll see you next time for the Tone Bass Classical Guitar Podcast.